So my name is uh, Tim Barker. Uh, I'm here with uh, my wife Katie and my son Isaac. We've been at uh, Seven Mile Road for a little over a year. Uh, we live in Wakefield and we're part of the, the Pine Banks Gospel Community Group. And uh, over this time that we've been here, we've really appreciated uh, the, the love and the warmth that we've experienced in our time here at Seven Mile. Learned a lot, been challenged in, in ways that we have chosen and ways that we wouldn't have chosen, that God's been teaching us many things through that. Um, so it's exciting for me to get to have the chance to stand before you today and open up God's Word with you. One of the things that's most exciting about doing that is that, really, it's, it's hard for me to mess it up. Uh, to be honest, God is going to speak through His Word as I give it to you today. And really, my words aren't going to carry a whole lot of meaning. They're not going to do a whole lot. It's the thing that God's designed for a man to stand and herald the word to you, to speak uh, from the Bible in such a way that you then come in contact with God, and God is speaking to you to change you and present something new to you this morning. So I want to pray for just a moment that you'll hear that and that God will meet with us and work in our hearts. Let's pray. God, I do thank you uh, for the promise that you work through your word. I ask that you would open our eyes, that we would see wondrous things from your law, that you would show us uh, that you are good, and that we would taste and see that and believe that today. In your name, amen. So to be honest, as uh, I speak about this today, this is is some information, a, a thought that I haven't always believed. I mean, there's a sense in which this is a lesson I'm still learning. Uh, I tried to avoid it for a while, to be entirely honest, and uh, it's something that I'm still coming to grips with the full reality. You learn from pretty early on that there's some sins you can talk about, and there's some sins you don't ever bring up, right? There's these things that are okay to confess, to admit to, and then there's these sins that nobody wants to talk about that are taking place. Uh, there's kind of two spheres that I think of where this, this takes place, and, and one of those is, is in family settings, right? We all have that relative who has that questionable moral character, that bad financial situation, poor judgment. Everybody in the whole family knows it, right? But nobody talks about it. Nobody brings it up. You get together as a family. That's the last thing that's going to be mentioned at any kind of family gathering. And even more unlikely is the individual who's actually causing those issues ever comes forward and says, hey, this is my problem, everybody. You you all know I I kind of have a gambling issue. Never going to come up, right? Never going to be what they say. I think about another context where this happens to us a lot in life, and I think about that kind of in the career context. I don't know if you've been on uh, one of those interviews or if you've interviewed individuals and you've gone through that. There's this famous question uh, that people love to ask. What are your three greatest weaknesses? That's a setup, right? You, you get into that part of the interview, you're like, this isn't going to go really well at this point. Uh, I've asked that question myself. It's a really interesting study in human nature. And some of the responses you get are amazing. Things like, I'm a little too punctual. Maybe I'm too driven. Uh, maybe a little bit too much of a perfectionist. Or my all-time favorite, really, I don't have any. Really? Really? You have no weaknesses at all? That, that's kind of hard to believe. Uh, but... You know, it, it's, I've been in this situation on the other side of the table as well, right? You're in that situation where you're in a, an interview and you're like, well, I kind of like this job. You're asking me what's wrong with me, so what do I tell them here that's true that doesn't actually show that I'm not perfect for this job? Okay, uh, what can I come up with here in this exact situation? So there are those moments when we have to stare face-to-face with our own limitations, our own weaknesses, our own shortcomings. And as we stand in that moment, when we stare right in the face, yes, I have to come clean here and say there's something wrong with me. I'm actually not perfect. What do we do? We're looking for an explanation, a way to say, this is why something's wrong with me. And our immediate response is, it's got to be somebody else. 
That's the reason. So if I'm in a career situation, well, it was the employer. Here's the situation. You've got to understand why this happened that way. Or my boss, he's a real jerk, and that's kind of how this worked out this way. In the family, well, you know, my parents, the, my upbringing, my society, anything else we can think of, that's who we can point to for blame. And we're notorious for it. I mean, if there is actually a point where we have to come, to, come clean and say that there's been an imperfection, something wrong in our character at all, we look to our parents, our environment, our educational systems, our company, the politics, the weather, doctors, society as a whole, our friends, our enemies, our neighbors, our boss, our children, our spouses, our third cousin twice removed. And these are just my list. I don't even know who you use. But this is who I look at, and you're trying to find any explanation possible for, for what you've done. And when you finally come to these moments where something's wrong, uh, you, you try to point out, you find someone else to blame in this exact situation of who could possibly be to blame for coming short. And when you, when you go to that situation, we have to be thinking, it's not just me who does this, it's not just you that does this, it's really part of our nature. It's, it's how we've been groomed through life, it's what we've seen modeled before us, and really it's a big part of human nature. You can't miss it. And so when we look at Genesis 3 in the text this morning that we spent some time in over the, the text, we're going to see really the first blame shift that's taken place. Uh, McCann did a great job of kind of illustrating how that comes up in, in our life, even as children, how these things play through. It goes back to this original moment in the garden. So if you have your Bibles and you open up to Genesis chapter 3, we will park in kind of verses 8 through 13 and look through that. If you've been tracking with us here over the weeks over the summer, you know we've spent a good, good healthy chunk of time here in Genesis 3, uh, really getting a feel for what's happened since there has been sin that has entered the world. How has that changed who we are? And today, we're going to look at uh, one of the responses that come from sin uh, that, that we have still in our life today that we still struggle with. So as we, we look at this first uh, blame shift, we kind we of walk into the narrative here of Genesis 3. What's happened up to this point in the first seven verses is we've had this close, tight view of this, this first sin that's taken place. And now in verse 8, the narrative starts to pick up again. We start to get a little bit more action that's taking place in the story. The, the camera kind of pans out a little bit more. So in verse 8, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. What we start to see here is that paradise has been lost in just a quick few verses. And now, uh, Adam and Eve have, have broken God's law. They've, they were told not to eat of a certain tree in the Garden of Eden. The serpent played a role in deceiving them, and Adam and Eve also have eaten the fruit. In verse 8, now we see the Lord has shown up. He's present in the garden. And the first response is what Matt talked about a couple of weeks ago, which is this hiding, this desire to seek out darkness, to hide. Once we sin, there's this in, innate ability, this innate desire to go and hide, to get away from having that be seen by others. Then, as we continue to see, God comes in his graciousness in verse 10. I'm sorry, verse 9. It says, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And in verse, verse, 9, or verse 10, he said, And I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Pretty logical response. Makes sense. We, we see where he's coming from there. Come to verse 11. He says, uh, God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I've commanded you not to eat? So two quick questions here come from God, and then this really gets to the, the key for our text this morning, which is, is really this verse 12 response. Uh, as, we, as we look here, I want to make sure you get a sense of what's happening in the situation in the world at this point. There's seriously one other person in the whole world. There's some animals, angels, 
Satan, God, beautiful garden. That's it. So in my mind, there's not a whole lot of places to hide, and there's not a whole lot of people to blame. And yet, we see that immediate ability after that, that hiding from our sin, once you have to confront God, He's right there. He's standing in front of you. There's nowhere else to hide. You look for somebody else to blame. That's what's part of our nature. That's who we are. So how does Adam respond to God's question uh, as he comes out in verse 12? God puts the sin before Adam. It's obvious in both the narrative exchange and in the character of God that he knows already what Adam's done. There's no question there. And so this is now Adam's opportunity to step up and confess before God. He doesn't need to go through a priest. He doesn't have to just confess some respectable sin. He can actually come clean with his real wrongdoing before the God of the universe. But what does he do? He says, that woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. That woman whom you gave to me, gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. If you look closely at verse 12, this is structured in English beautifully, masterfully conveying the artistry that's happening in Hebrew. Look how late in the sentence Adam even admits to his action. It's like the very end of this thought. In Hebrew, the omission is literally one word. Yeah, and I ate. And he closes it off. It's sort of like, sure, sure, I did that. You got it. But, but you got to understand my situation. That's what Adam's sort of getting out here in these few words that we have here in verse 12. The language of the verse conveys exactly uh, what Adam is doing. Between the accusation of God and the admission of guilt by Adam, he stuffs his excuses in between. He looks for anyone else that he can point to. So, so where does he go first? Well, he blame shifts immediately to the woman. Adam doesn't step up. He's not a man. He doesn't, doesn't own his responsibility before God. No. Uh, he, he puts his, his wife, his special gift, between him and the Almighty God. Backs off. Amazing, right? Puts himself there. It's, it's so interesting when we read the Scriptures how quickly it changed from Genesis 2. Do you remember that? When Eve is first presented to Adam, and he is just so... God's goodness. And he extols in poetic verse... Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And now here we are, one chapter over, now it's the woman who you gave to be with me. Okay, He's changed his perspective so differently uh, in that short amount of, of passage. Also notice then, besides blaming the woman, notice this important adjectival phrase that tells us who else Adam is shifting the blame to. He says, it's also the woman who you gave, who you gave to be with me. Remember, there's a very limited number of actors in the scene right now. There's only so many people that he can point to. So as he looks at Eve as, as part of the problem, he then shifts very quickly to really say, you know, God, it's actually your fault. You gave me this gift. You gave me this woman to be with in my life. And now, look how I haven't been able to fulfill your command. This is really demonstrating a very common human predicament in sin and shifting blame. Well, I said it's very natural for us to shift the blame and find someone else to go to. It's not often that we stop and think what we're doing when we point to someone else as the cause of our blame. Every shift of, our, of, of ourselves, uh, outside of ourselves, I should say, points back to God, whether explicitly or implicitly. Think about creation, all the things that God has given us, the people that are in our lives, the circumstances that we have. God's sovereign. He's brought all those things into our life. He's the giver of all of these gifts. And when we point to one of those things as what's caused our sin, we're really pointing back to God. We're really saying, God, you've brought this circumstance that's made me sin. 
there's a, there's a technical term to use for that kind of irreverence, that kind of pointing back to God in disrespect. We call it blasphemy. And when we, we point out to God with this heavy-handed uh, approach that we're saying, God, I don't respect who you are as creator and sovereign of the world, and I actually attribute to you sin, that's blasphemy. James 1.13 tells us that God does not tempt us to sin, and neither can God be tempted by sin. So when Adam knows that he sinned, and when he tries to say that the reason for sin is God's good gift in Eve, he's actually attributing the, the sin to God himself. In the New Testament letter, we've talked about it in the last couple of weeks as well, uh, 1 John, uh, in chapter 1, verse 10, it says, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Thus, to reiterate my point, failure to own our sin before God, and, and really others as well, as I'll point out, makes us each guilty of blasphemy. Probably not something you were thinking of today when you walked in on Sunday, but something that I know has been challenging me throughout the week, that as I look for any other excuse other than myself, for my failings, for my sin, it's actually quite, a, quite an audacious move against God. As you think about your shortcomings, as you think about your desire to hide naturally and then to point to other people as the sin, you're actually showing yourself to be one of those, those individuals who hates God and turns his fists up at God against his good gifts that he's given us. In verse 13, God doesn't even correct the man at this point. He turns to the, to the woman to see if she'll own her sin. She shows that blame shifting is not gender specific. It continues on as she points to the serpent and the fact that her condition was that she was deceived. So two people in the world, just so you got that, two peoples in the world, some animals, angels, Satan, God, beautiful garden, and they pretty much blamed everyone possible except owning their own sin. And Eve puts her own admission of guilt at the very end of her uh, explanation as well. So it's easy for us to point the finger at Adam and Eve, and we can see the futility of their blame, we can see the audacity of their claim, and we can see the obviousness of their shame. But what about us? What do we do with this? Okay, we're in the same situation. We find ourselves constantly in the midst of sin and deciding how to respond in the moment of sin. We're at this crossroads. Okay, I, could, I can hide now my sin or I can come and own my sin before God and others. I'm at a crossroads where I can point to someone else, some other circumstance, as the reason for my sin, or I can own my sin before God and others. So what I want to do with the remainder of our time together is, is go ahead and think through from the rest of Scripture, how is it that Adam and Eve should have responded, and what is it that we need to do when we come in contact with sin, and we're standing there guilty before God, needing to own it. And what I want to present to you today is, is that the human tendency that keeps us from living free and honestly before God and others is ultimately uh, a problem with ourselves. And the thing that will be the remedy, the thing that changes that, is being able to live free and honestly with the gospel. The gospel is what frees us to own our sin before God and others. It's the gospel that gives us that ability to own our sin before God and others. So I'm going to talk about two spheres where we do this. And this is where it gets a little bit tricky. One of these is before God. Okay, that's pretty straightforward. We talk about that a lot. If you've been in the life of any kind of, of Christian institution at all, you're familiar with the concept of owning your sin before God. And there's various ways that you'll be told about that. We're going to look at a little bit from the scriptures about how that's explained. But beyond that, not only owning your sin before God, who's holy, a judge, a sovereign, your creator, but also owning your sin before others. That means your fellow creatures, 
other people in your covenant community and being honest and, and direct about your own failings. That's pretty tough. Um, so we're going to talk about what that looks like uh, in, in living, breathing, real life. So I said it brings freedom. That's what the gospel is offering us in owning our sin before God and others. And freedom sounds good, right? I mean, we're, we're Americans, we're Bostonians. Freedom's check the box every time. Whatever it means to get the freedom, that's what we're looking for. But think about it. It's not just that freedom's a good thing here. It's really a necessity of knowing that God really knows who you are, like really knows who you are, like when nobody else knows who you are. Not your family, not your spouse, not your best friend. God really knows who you are. And you have to believe, by necessity, that if God really knows who you are and really loves you and can really save you, then that's really free. You can be honest with God about your sin. But what's more mind-boggling is that you can actually be honest about that same level of intimacy within other believers. Other people that you can speak to, and there should be no shame, no hiding, no blame-shifting about the sin that's true about each of us. And so I hope to get us all there by the end of this, this sermon. Opportunity for us to think through that. So if I think about owning our sin before God, I want to talk about where really is the issue. You know, that's where we have to start. If we're going to own our sin before God, it comes clear that the problem, it's, it's us. It's in us. That's where the problem is of our sin. So when we come to God, we have to know, I'm the problem. You have to be saying, I'm the problem. We often are looking for other places to blame, but when we turn it inward, it really changes the category. I'm kind of reminded, maybe you've heard this, this slogan uh, that's, that's been around for a while, we have met the enemy and it is us. If you've ever seen that, I kind of looked that up. This is kind of you know, one of the weird Wikipedia searches things. But uh, as you look into that, it's a, it's a, it's a cartoonist uh, back in the mid-20th century named Walt Kelly who uh, had a comic strip uh, called something weird like Pogo. Don't know. Uh, predates me. But uh, as uh, this comic strip was out, uh, he had this, this famous moment where he took a Commodore Perry quote from the early 1800s, uh, and he said, we have met the enemy, and they are ours. A great, you know, kind of militaristic statement. We've seen them, we've spied them out, we're going to attack. And he decided to take that phrase and kind of flip it back toward the speaker and say, we have met the enemy and it is us. And it was used originally in the 1970s for kind of Earth Day campaigns and you've probably seen it in that vibe of, of thinking. But I think it's a wonderful illustration of our sin condition. We have seen the enemy and it's really us. It's not anyone else that we have to look to. It's only you. As you look in the mirror, that's where we're falling short. The problem with Adam, the problem with Eve, and the problem with you and me is that the enemy is us. It's in us. In the New Testament, James 1, 14 and 15 gives us a, a really beautiful, interesting, maybe beautiful is too strong, a really compelling metaphor to understand how sin is, is working in our lives. It talks about the gestation of sin. James uses the metaphor of pregnancy and applies it to all of us, so there's no, no hiding, okay? It, it applies to all of us. Here's what happens. How does it all start with, with sin in our life? It starts with a temptation. It lures us. It deceives us. Where, what, what's it come? Why is that able to pull on you? It's because of desires. Actual, true desires that you have in your personality and your being. It's those things that will be drawn out, brought along in a temptation, until eventually you have conceived sin. Sin has taken place in your heart, and then you'll act out of that. It'll become a part of our lives. That's true of all of us. 
And when it's run its course, it actually comes to being, in James' metaphor, a sin baby. Of all things, we each have these babies of sin that we hold on to, that we've nurtured, that we've allowed to develop, that we feed, that we care for, that we prize, and it's sin. Whether it's something secret that we hold on to or something that's as plain as the nose on our face, we all have that level of sin that's grown, that we've developed, and ourselves of. That's true of every one of us this morning, no matter how much we try to deny it, hide it, or look elsewhere. And what happens when the sin becomes mature? You think about maturity of a child, college degree, 2.3 kids, a dog, a mortgage. It's not what happens with a sin baby. A sin baby matures and leads to death. Whether that leads us to death in our own life and the loss of true joy on an ongoing basis because we've held on to that sin, or whether it gives us eternal and ultimate death because we've held on to that sin as our only hope. That's pretty dark. It's pretty heavy sitting on a first Sunday, first Sunday in August. But the reality is, is that's what we have to see in ourselves. If we don't see that sin as truly what's in us and what makes us terrible and who Jesus says we are, then there's no way we can stand before God and really own our sin. But that's heavy. That's where we sit. We're in that situation of sin in our life that comes out of our desires and we have this living, breathing sin within each of us that we've never gotten rid of. So what do we do about that? We've got to do something, right? That's a, that's a hard place to move. You don't want to walk out the doors right now, okay? This is where you need something else to go forward. So what do we need? We need to take a good theological word like repentance. That's the response in this situation. So if you have this sin baby that's grown and that's a part of you before God, the sin is in you, there's no one else to blame, you have to come toward repentance. Martin Luther, the 16th century reformer, uh, famous for nailing his 95 theses on the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany, had this on the top of his list. He said, all of life is repentance. That perspective is essential for how we need to live our life. If we're consciously aware that we have this sin within us and we're the problem, there's no one else to blame, that's heavy. You're going to be borne down. So the natural response that we have to do is come before God and own that. Be entirely honest. Saying to God, I know that I've messed up. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm weak. I know that I've transgressed your law. And actually the mark of a healthy, mature believer is not someone who just skims the surface and says, eh, it was a pretty good week. I think I lied once. I don't really remember anything else like that. That's not really the Christian view. The reality is, is we should be so aware of the sin in our life because it's there. We have this sin growing within us. And the only way that that can be dealt with is in repentance to God. Coming before God and owning that and saying, God, I know that I have this terribleness in me. I know that I perpetually have the wrong motives. I have the wrong thoughts. I perpetually do the wrong thing. And yet I can come to God, confess that, and experience his forgiveness. Martin Luther was so overcome with this, he has such a beautiful way of, of phrasing this in his theology. He talks about that at the same time as a Christian, you're both justified and a sinner. They're simultaneously true. You never get away from one or the other. So just as we love as believers to know, we're justified. You've believed in Jesus Christ for the gospel, that he saved you, that he stood in your place, and that can never be changed. You're held there forever. Rejoice in that. But oh, don't ever forget you're always that same sinner. You still have that depravity. You still have that heart that looks for the first chance to turn away from God. The first enticement, 
you'll go towards it. That's who you are in your nature. And it's only by Christ, only by the gospel that you've received that you're anything different. That only time that you actually respond in obedience, that was Jesus working through you. The only time that you don't had fall, fall headlong off into sin, that was the work of the Spirit preserving you in those moments. So how do we see this illustrated in Scripture? For the sake of time, I won't go into much more depth. If you want to see, what does this look like? If I'm really owning my sin before God, this is illustrated perfectly for us in Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, David uh, owns his sin before God in poetic verse. You don't always have to rhyme and stuff like that, but you know, it's, it's a good hustle here for him doing that. But as David does this in Psalm 51, it's a wonderful display. As David tried to hide his sin and assumedly probably blame others as well, the prophet Nathan came to him and he brought the Old Testament gospel to bear on, on David's life. And Psalm 51 talks about what it looks like to own our repentance before God. So I just wanted to read uh, from, from Paul Tripp, who has a little bit to describe for us what happens here in Psalm 51. He says, when David displays for us this confession, he starts with his own righteousness before his sin. There's no excuses. He says, I have only one argument to make. It's not the argument of the difficulty uh, of the environment I'm in. It's not the argument of the difficult people that I'm near. It's not the argument of the good intentions that were thwarted in some way. No, I have only one argument. It's right there in the first verse of Psalm 51. I come to the Lord with only one appeal, his mercy. I have no other defense. I have no other standing. I have no other hope. I can't escape the reality of my biggest problem, me. Now, that's hard work. I mean, to really see that you're at fault, because we spend all of our efforts telling ourselves that we're great, that we can make it, that we can change ourselves, that you're a little bit better than this guy over here. But if we can really stand before God and appreciate where the sinfulness is that's in us and own that before God, confess it, and experience this forgiveness of that honesty, that God really knows who you are, that you're honest before him, and he still loves you, and his grace is still there for you. That's really freeing. But I said part of this was, was tougher, something that I didn't exactly, still not sure that I really have a great handle on, to be honest, is owning our sin before others. And this is a tough part. I mean, it's tough to stand up and extol the teachings of Scripture when you yourself are still struggling and coming to grips with what it really teaches and what it means for you to do. But it's owning your sin before others. And that's hard to do. And so to kind of walk you through some of how I've been going through this over the last few months, I want to talk about what it's not, because I figured that out, okay? And I'll tell you a little bit about what it is and see if uh, we can see this together as a way to move forward and be helpful. So when I talk about owning your sin before others, so that's other people, right? Okay, the, the people that we're with, people in our life, the people you rub shoulders with, uh, and especially the people that you're in covenant community with uh, here at Seven Mile Road. If you think about what it's not, the first thing it's not is uh, this phrase that was really popular. I don't know if you had this phrase, you used it, uh, maybe this dates me a little bit, but uh, it's my bad. You ever heard that phrase? It goes back to roughly the 80s and 90s, and arguably it's attributed to the great, uh, great late Sudanese-American NBA star, Manute Bull, if you remember him. All right? Manute Bull spoke some broken English, you know, kind of, kind of part of it. So whether it's fully attributable, there's a whole internet articles about this stuff. You can, you can spend your afternoon on that if you really want to and figure out, did he really start it or not? But whenever he would, you know, throw a terrible pass, as he was at times prone to do, or jack up a three-pointer. He was a center. Not always a great move. Well before there were European centers. And when he would do this, miss the basket completely, total air ball, he'd follow it up with, my bad. 
okay, all good now. You know, he said, my bad. We're all taken care of at this point. And that became to catch on. So if I think about my own maybe more competitive time in the late 90s when I'm playing sports, this was the epitome of adolescent self-awareness. All right? If you could throw that bad pass and you said, my bad to your teammate, you were as cool as anything. You're like, yeah, yeah, I got everything under control. I understand that if I blew it and said my bad, I'm good. You, you understand? We're on the same page. I could totally shoot the, the free kick over the back of the net. My bad. Everything's covered up. You missed the cutoff. My bad. Doesn't matter what the step is that you took. As long as you followed up with my bad, everything was taken care of. I want to be clear. That's not what owning your sin before others means. Uh, what it meant then is you were somewhat aware that you were not yet perfect. That you had the ability to acknowledge, I could occasionally make an error. And it would be a trite phrase of my bad. What this sounds like then in, in more of a, a, a sin context, you know, this is when we come out with the straightforward, yeah, I got mad at my wife this week. Moving on. I lusted. I had a bad thought. I was angry. That's it. Moving on. That's not enough. It's a good start, okay? It's great. You've acknowledged the fact that you have something imperfect in your life. Good. I'm glad we've started there. That's not enough. The reality is, is we need to understand the hard issues that are taking place there. The reality of why you believe the lie. What idols you're worshiping. The fact that it's much more insidious than that. That it has a lot to do with you. It's not just that you had this momentary poor judgment situation. It's much deeper than that. The second thing I look at when I think about how it's not working, I look to the other great bastion source of information of the Harvard Business Review. And you might think that's a weird place to go look for finding about where to own your sin, and you'd probably be right. Um, but when you, when you look at that, there's been a couple of interesting blog posts. So when you look at uh, 2015, there was one about admitting when you're wrong. 2011, one about the art of admitting failure. And in these, you could almost read them and start thinking, maybe, maybe this is the idea, this is, this is what I should do. They strive for transparency. There's a lot that can be from you owning up to not being perfect, believe it or not. People appreciate knowing that you're a human. Uh, that comes out well, even in business. And when you, when you look at this, there's this, this air of like, okay, you can admit sometimes you don't measure up, sometimes the project doesn't go as planned, sometimes you drop the ball, and owning that can actually build more engagement in the organization. Sometimes it can help you collaborate with colleagues, build that trust. But the, but the tenor of this is really what's incorrect for us. The idea is that it somehow gets you a leg up. The idea that somehow that makes you better. You'll surpass the other executives. You'll move further in your career if you can learn to do this. And also, it puts a nice tight ring fence. Look, there's some things you can admit to, and there's other things you'd never tell that that happened. So clearly demarcating, there's some things that are acceptable to confess and some things not. So again, going back to, to where we started, that's not going to measure up. That's not going to get us to where we need to go in confessing our sins before others. So you're saying, all right, Tim, what, what do we end up doing? What do we need to do to be able to own our sin before others? There's a verse that is in James chapter 5, uh, verse 16. This is our text. It says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. That key text gives us a glimpse for what this, war, what this looks like in, in real life. It means actually there's healing, there's some helpful work that happens through the combination of confessing sins to other believers, other people that are there with you in the same journey, and also accompanying that with prayer. In Bonhoeffer's book, uh, Life Together, he describes owning our sin before other believers. 
And this isn't just merely owning our faults, right? If you offend another believer, I don't know, you walk up and slug somebody in the back of the head, yeah, obviously you should confess, deal with that sin, be reconciled together. That's not enough. The idea is that actually we're dealing with the, a human element to our divine repentance, okay? There's something that we can gain from you dealing with confession with God. That's where you've got to start, owning that sin with, between you and God, but also then extending that to other, other people actually brings additional freedom and helpful to us. Matt talked about a couple weeks ago uh, with the idea of hiding and how our sin wants us to do that. And really that brings about isolation. We're alienated from one another and that that hurts our community. But really as you're able to stand with other believers who all know that they're sinners, who all know they don't measure up, there's actually a rebuilding of community that can take place. So it moves us from shifting blame to our environment, to our circumstances and other people. Briefly, Bonhoeffer explains that owning our sin before other believers breaks us free from sin, first of all, by taking us to the cross as the only place for our humbling and to be met by forgiveness. What does this mean? It means that if I'm just in my house, in the privacy there, and no one else is around, and I confess my sin to God, there's a sense in which, obviously, God forgives me. Obviously, that's taking place. I'm coming before him, and that happens. But if I haven't shared the same situation with other believers then I haven't really been humbled in some ways, right? You know God knows who you are, but there's this whole other level of humbling that happens as you stare another human being in the face and they understand where you fell short. And what that means is that your, your praise, your hope, your glory can only really be in the cross. It's no longer other people's opinions of you. That fell, it dropped once you had to open your mouth and tell them how bad you really are. Now you said, really? I got nothing left because these people know I'm not that great. You have to then only glory in the forgiveness that comes in the cross. The second breakthrough that comes from this is it gives us a new life. As we can relieve that burden on our back, finally coming clean, finally being honest, it really gives us a sense of, of new life as we tell that to other believers. And this one is really great. This is one that, that's really beautiful to get an understanding of. Is finally, we can be reminded with certainty by a Christian brother or sister of the true words of the gospel. This is the power that really comes from it. If you're there and you're confessing that sin before God honestly, and you have it in your heart, you're, you're, you're speaking out to God, confessing where you're at, there's times when you're going to feel like that's not going any further than the ceiling. There's going to be times when you're like, is there a God who really is believing, or believing me this time and forgiving me for the one millionth time that I've messed up again? Is that really true? At that moment, a means of grace that God has given to us is another fellow believer a brother or sister who can say, yes, yes, the gospel is true. Yes, he forgave you again. Yes, you are a terrible person, let me tell you. But the reality is, is God still loves you and he knows who you are. What an incredible ministry that we have together as believers. At Seven Mile Road, this happens in our gospel community groups. That's what we're striving for. We're on various you know, parts of the roller coaster of getting to that point, owning it honestly, speaking that truth to each other. But that's what we offer in that. That's what folks in this room have been doing for one another. And that's an incredible ministry. To sit there next to another person who is at the very end of their rope, unclear that they can still believe that God loves them, that their sin, no matter how terrible it is, can still be forgiven. You, being there, hearing that, and reminding them the gospel can be the difference between that person experiencing forgiveness and continuing to believe. That's how God has set it up. That's how God has ordained us and called us to own our sin before other people. And I'm saying that's tough. That's, that's hard for me to imagine that we're, we're called to do this as well. 
This is a sweet, 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 sweet gift that God's given us that we would honestly never give ourselves. Why would you ever pick that as the way to have that means of grace and reminding of, of God's great work? So in order to close this, there's kind of two things I want you to be, be thinking through. If you're hearing me, and this all sounds a bit crazy, I think you heard me correctly, okay? So I want to make sure that's really clear. Um, there's an incredible gap here. A holy God who's done nothing wrong and can't stand sin has actually provided a way through Jesus Christ that he will look past your sins and you still got them and be able to forgive you. And if that's a new message, something you're still coming to grips with, that's an incredible message to continue to search and go after. You need to get this understanding. It's unbelievable that Jesus took our place and that he stands as the perfect one so we don't have to. And you couldn't do it anyways, just so you know. What about the rest of us? If you're sitting here and you're saying, I believe the gospel, and I, I've held to this for a while, but, but who does Jesus say that you are, right? That's our theme. That's what comes up. I want to make sure you hear it loud and clear. Consider this the feel-good message for the day. You and I are both dirty, dirty sinners. We're weak. We can't perform. We can't measure up. I can never stand on my own worth and my own performance. So instead of trying to hold that mask over your face for one more day, for one more hour, it's hot, it's sweaty, it's fake, it's not going to get it done. Experience the freedom that comes from owning your sin honestly before God and being able to own that sin before others in community. There's freedom there. And you think, wait, 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 Tim, that sounds great for you. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've been involved with. What's my struggle? I want to just tell you, it's not from me. The understanding is that there's always more grace. You'll never drain the well. God will never tap out on the grace that he offers you for the darkest, worst sin that you can imagine in your life. Receive that as God's word to you today. As Adam and Eve plunged humanity into the curses we've heard about last week and the consequences, we can be reminded this week that believing the gospel, we can own our sin before God and others. And this changes everything. All of our relationships. It can change that, that, that desire to measure up, that ability to always perform, to always meet the standard, those duties. It changes how we perform as fathers and mothers, as bosses and employees, as students and teachers, as we function within a church body, husbands and wives. We can ultimately live life differently as we stand before God honestly knowing that he is enough for us, and it's not what we're able to do. So own your sin before God and others to experience the freedom of the gospel. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the chance to open your word. I pray that you would help this go down deep into our hearts and we would believe it, God. It's counter normalcy. It's counter our nature. But God, help us to own sin and to know that that is where we experience freedom. Amen.